Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Let me just remind you of what this series is about and why we're here. Back to the Future Church is the title of this series, and it's really about going back into the early church. If you remember on the very first Sunday of this series, we went back and we read about that first congregation after the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. One of the things that you'll notice about that congregation in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is how they loved one another, motivated by the Spirit, and, and, and actually worked for each other and served one another in love. And this morning, we're going to go to the book of Ephesians because the, the book of Ephesians about a congregation that Paul wrote to, to say, hey, here is what the church is meant to be. Here's what the church is meant to look like. And Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 talks about the motivation for being the church, that we're saved by God's amazing grace. And then it goes on to talk about the servant mentality and how God has prepared works for every one of us to do. So let's take a look at that. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, reach inside your, your program and you'll find a little white half sheet called the Crosswalk Notes. And we've put, uh, we've put the, this morning's Bible readings there for you too. Here's what it says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, one of the biggest questions that people in our world ask today is, where is God when it hurts? Have you ever been in that position where you are just hurting and you're looking around saying, where is God right now? And you feel kind of shut off from God. And it's, it's a question that affects a lot of people, a question that will even prevent people from coming to church because they're thinking, God has left me. But I can assure you of this on the basis of the Bible. If there is one promise that God makes, it is that God will not leave you. Let me, let me uh, read you just a few of those. When God sent Joshua into the promised land to lead the children of Israel in to take over the land of milk and honey that he promised, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When Jesus was ascending into heaven just before his ascension, he told his disciples to go out on a huge mission. He said, look, as you go out on that mission, know this. I am with you always to the very end of the age. All the way back in Psalm 23. I love that psalm. And many of you I know are familiar with it. Remember what the psalmist writes? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for... You are with me. God's promise to be with us is there each and every time we go through suffering in life. But there's, there's one other thing I want us to remember. You see the band behind me. Jonathan and the band volunteered to play this song for the message today because there's, there's another way that God is present with us when we're going through pain in life, when we're hurting and when we're suffering. 
And that is that not only does he give us his promises, he backs up his promises with something very tangible. And do you know what that is? What that tangible thing is? It's you. It's me. It's the church. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ. We are God's hands and feet and ears and eyes to help take care of the hurting in the world. And here's a song that exemplifies that truth. The song makes clear the point that the church is the body. Pull out your crosswalk notes for a moment. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12:27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. We're the body of Christ, and each one of us is a part of it. That means that everyone in this room today is important. And the contribution that we have to make in God's kingdom in Christ's body is important. We have a role to play, and that role fits with God's purposes. It's kind of interesting to look into what Paul wrote to this congregation in Ephesus. Because he starts out by talking about the importance of his purpose. He made known to us, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, that is Christ. And as he goes on to picture the church in this book, you can page back to Ephesians chapter 4. If you've you've got a Bible with you this morning, page with me. Listen to what he says. Part of his purpose was to set up the church in a way that there would be leaders in the church that would train the whole body to do works of service. Listen to what it says. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's really a huge part of why we're here. As we've been going through this series, we've been talking about some of the other things that God has called us together for. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we learned that God called us together and gave us a great commission to go out into the world and, and share the gospel with every nation. And last week, we learned about how God has called us together so that we can help each other to grow and develop and become more mature in Christ. Well, it's kind of interesting how he puts this because he says that as we serve We're going to gain that maturity. Listen, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the matter of our serving is built on the matter of our wanting to grow and develop, and it's an important part of our growth and development process. So God made you and me for service. That's clear. 
Each one of us is called to be servants and ministers in the church. And God has equipped each of us for this service. Ephesians 4, 7 says, Every one of us, to every one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We've all been given gifts so that we can serve. And in your crosswalk notes, you'll see a passage from Psalm 139, written by King David, that shows us that God personally supervised how, how you were built, how I was built. Look at that passage. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. One of the past decade's best-selling business books is, is Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in there, one of his seven habits is begin with the end in mind. And that's exactly what David is saying God did when he formed us. He knew what purpose he wanted you to serve in his kingdom. He knew what purpose he wanted me to serve. And as he was building us, he personally supervised it so that, so that we could be built in just that way. Architects do this all the time, right? What's one of the famous sayings of an architect? Form follows function. And that's exactly what God did with us. He formed us and shaped us for the function that he had purposed for us long before you and I were ever even born. And then there's more. You know that even though God created a perfect world originally, sin came into it. Sin spoiled all of God's creation. And especially sin had an impact, a huge impact, on mankind, when Adam and Eve took from that fruit and ate it, they literally spiritually died. They became blind. They, they became enemies of God. And every generation since then has inherited that. It's what we confess every Sunday, that we're born in sin, conceived in it even. And because of that, we were destroyed. The, our original purpose could no longer be lived out because of our, our death and our, our enmity towards God. But God not only created us in the first place, he also recreated us. What the Bible calls redeemed. He redeemed us from being on the ash heap of, of sin. Recently, my son Aaron, who lives in San Francisco, decided to park in the wrong place in San Francisco, ironically in front of a church. And uh, being parked there, someone came along, and it was a no-parking zone, and his car got taken to impound. And he gave me permission to tell you this story. He, uh, he had to pay, of course, to get his car back out of impound. He had to redeem in his car, in other words. Now, I, I want you to think about yourself. What, what kind of car are you? Well, according to the Bible, we are totaled. We are total wrecks because of sin. And we have been impounded, and a price has to be paid so that we can be brought back out and restored. 
And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He's bought us back out of our captivity, out of our impoundment to Satan and to sin and to death. And he's taken us and he's perfectly and beautifully restored us until we're just like new. We were junkers because of sin. But God has totally taken us. His blood washed away all the greasy stains of sin. His righteousness puttied in and filled in and painted over all the dents and the dings that were caused by our own failure to obey God's law. He took us out of this junkyard of transgression and put us back on the road again. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19 says about us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Remember in the song that we just sang where it says, Christ paid his blood for us. What an amazing sacrifice. And that made us a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling. Will you circle that word, reconciling? The world. Circle that word, too, the world, because that means he reconciled you and me. If he reconciled the entire world, he reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. I love that word reconciliation because I told you a moment ago that when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, it, 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 it put a, a, a chasm, a divide between us and God. And God took that by sending his son and, and totally bridged that gap and brought us back together with him again. He, he brought us reconciliation. He made us one again. And now he can use us to get his work done. Whereas before, he didn't even want to sit in the cab of our heart, much less even look inside the cab because it was too filthy. Now all that God can think of is, how can I stay in the cab of my children's heart? And and drive them around and be in the driver's seat of their heart and, and take them where they need to go and get them to do the work that will bring glory to me. What a change going from enemies of God to God saying, I just want to be with my children all the time, helping them to work and serve and love and bring glory to me. And that's that's how God feels about you now, because we are reconciled to him. God created us in the first place to do his work, and then he redeemed us. Go back to our original text, Ephesians 2. And and look what it says there. It says, we are God's workmanship. Not once, but twice, because he created us. And then, by his grace, it says in that passage, for it is by grace we're saved, by God's undeserved love, through faith. We're God's workmanship. You know what that word means? It means work of art, literally. Workmanship means that God crafted us as his work of art. The Greek word is poema. Can you guess what English word comes from that Greek word, poema? We're God's poem. He literally took the time to craft us word by word and make us exactly the way he wanted us to be 
so that we could serve him according to his purpose. So here's our first point that's made from Ephesians 2. God shaped me as his work of art. I want you to really believe that. You are God's workmanship. He knit you together in your mother's womb, and then he went back when you were dinged up and totaled by sin and redeemed and restored you. But now you might say, I don't feel so much like a work of art. A lot of times we don't, right? Especially when we think about our sins. We think about our our failings when it comes to God's law and God's will. We feel far less than anything like a work of art. We still sometimes feel like that total wreck that hasn't been restored. And it's true, according to the Bible, that we still have a sinful nature. And though we are God's work of art, there's still a little bit of that sinful nature always clinging to us and trying to drag us backward and take us back to impound again, try to get us back to be imprisoned by Satan and sin and death. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He says, and I put this in your notes, For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. That's what I keep on doing. Sin's such a tough thing, isn't it? On the one hand, we know that we're completely and totally and freely forgiven. On the other hand, we know that we constantly are faced with temptations, and we, and we tend to go back to what we've left in that sinful life. And so we don't end up feeling like a work of art. We end up feeling like a sinful person, just a regular person. And that may even ask, tend to make us ask, can I really be God's servant? A regular person like me, a sinful person like me, can God really still use me? Well, here's what I want you to know, and I put a fill-in for, for this in your notes. We are common people, but we're in the hands of an extraordinary God. Just like Paul, we're going to say, what I want to do is the good, uh, what, what I do is not the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. That's what I keep on doing. But that common experience of, of mankind of being sinful, can be overcome by God's amazing power. David wrote this, a man who was afflicted by sins and fears and shortcomings at times when he was king. Look at what he relied on. It is God, he says, who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet Like the feet of a deer, he enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. I'm a common man, David says. But I am in the hands of an uncommon and extraordinary God. And when I remember that, well, I know that I have strength. I know that my way can be made perfect. I know my feet can run like a deer. And I can stand on the mountaintops. What an amazing thing that that David had that feeling, even knowing that he was weak and sinful at times. And sure, you know this and I do too. Life's a battle at times. Not just Satan and sin and death, but also the, the other things that come at us, right? From our family, 
at work. It's, it's not just the direct attacks on us, but it's also the fact that we, we live in an entire world that's clouded up by sin. But look at what that passage says. Look at what David says. And take that for yourself, too. Know that when you lean on God, you're going to be armed with strength. Your arm's going to be able to pull back that bow, even if it's made of bronze. You'll have the shield of victory that David had. And I love that last line. You stoop down to make me great, David says about God. Remember when you were a little kid and your dad would stoop down like this and he would lift you up and put you up on his shoulders, hold you by the feet and walk around. Maybe it was a a long day and you were out and your legs were just tired and you couldn't walk anymore, but your dad stooped down, picked you up, set you on his shoulders and man... You felt like the king of the earth up there on your dad's shoulders as you walked, as he walked around with you up there. That's what God says for you even now. Your heavenly father stoops down and and puts you up on his shoulders and, and makes you great. What a promise that is. What an amazing gospel promise it is. So that's why we don't have to be worried about our strengths or our abilities our wisdom, our courage. That's why we don't have to be worried about our sins and our failures, that they're somehow going to prevent us from serving God's purpose in this life. God has never been impressed with my strength or my courage or my wisdom because it's really all about leaning on him. He loves the humble person who says, I don't have strength or courage or wisdom of my own Lord. I I need yours. What were the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those who have that humble heart that are that are willing to say, look, I don't have it, but God, I I know that you do. And like Paul, we might cave into temptation or time at times or revert back to, to sin that we've sworn never to commit again or start to compare our abilities with the abilities of someone else and feel like we got the short end of the stick. We might be tempted to conclude God could never use me like this. And when we have that thought, that's when I want you to remember that you are a common person, but you are in the hands of an uncommon and extraordinary God. And he has lifted you up and set you on his shoulders. Remember what he told the apostle Paul when Paul was saying, Lord, I'm too weak. I've got this thorn in the flesh. And, you know, will you take it away so I can serve you better? Remember what he said to Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. So here's our, our second point. God has shaped me to do significant things because he is an extraordinary, uncommon God. And when I lean on him, I will do significant things. I want to take you back to the very first words in this verse. Aren't these amazing words? Ephesians 2, 8. 
For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you understand how amazing those words really are? That when it comes to our salvation, there is nothing that we need to do. That word grace means just sit back and rest because I've done it all. It's a gift. I love you. I'm never going to stop loving you. There's nothing that you can do to make me love you less. And there's nothing you can do to make me love you more. I just love you because that's who I am. And you are my dearly loved child. By grace, by that love, I've sent you my son. And that son died on the cross to prove my love to you. And he took in that death all your sins on his shoulders and paid for them entirely. It's, they're gone. The punishment is gone. The guilt is gone. The shame is gone. It's, it was all on him. And then in its place, he gives us this amazing gift. And he says, this perfect Jesus died as your substitute. And because he died now, all that perfection, all that righteousness, as the Bible calls it, it's yours. And you own it. And that's why I don't count your sins against you anymore, like we read earlier. And now he says, but I didn't do that solely so that you could just bask in it. I did it so that once you understand how beautiful my love is and how wonderful it is, you're going to want to go out now. And yes, you're going to bask in it, but you're going to do more than bask in it. You're going to share it with others. And one of the ways that you're going to share my love with others, my grace with others, is you are going to grace others as I've graced you. Look at how it goes on. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then he says, for we are God's workmanship, right on the tail of that, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's say you're convinced. Let's say, yes, I get it. God redeemed me. He redeemed me for a purpose. That's clear. He wants me to grow and mature and serve. Does that mean you're not going to still have some roadblocks to get out of the way, even if you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's serve. You're still going to have some. And I want to deal with those as we close out the message today. First of all, one of, the, one of the big roadblocks is when we create a mental hierarchy of tasks. And what I mean by that is sometimes we do a, di- a degree of difficulty rating on the work that, that we have before us. And for some, if the task is rated menial, then they don't want to do it. They don't want to consider doing it. But here's the interesting thing that we observe when we read the Bible. Jesus' specialty was menial tasks. Think about this. What did Jesus do? He washed feet. He helped children. He fixed breakfast, and that was after his resurrection. And he served lepers. Things that most people didn't want to do, Jesus did. 
Nothing was beneath him because he came to serve. And he didn't serve despite his greatness. I think it's far more appropriate to say he served because of his greatness. And for him, there was no degree of difficulty. Every opportunity to serve was an amazing opportunity. The Bible says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Small tasks reveal big hearts. So one of the roadblocks I would encourage you to take out of the way is is stop rating things, and especially if you see something that you think might be menial. Remember what Jesus did. And remember how he looked for those menial tasks. Don't, in other words, underestimate the importance of a small task or change that you might contribute to God's kingdom. Now, it's true that great opportunities often disguise themselves in small tasks. The little things in life often determine the big ones. However, don't shy away from the big challenges on your plate either. You know, on the one hand, sometimes there are people that don't want to do the small menial things. And on the other hand, there are those of us who shy away from the big challenges, aren't there? Because they scare us. And we're worried, if I take that on, am I setting myself up for embarrassment? Am I going to totally flop? Because that is a huge, huge challenge. Remember Moses? He was one of those. Remember how many objections he threw up to God? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I don't know what to say. How am I going to convince the Israelites that you've sent me? God, what if they don't believe me? And God, remember, remember how you made me? I'm slow of speech. And tongue, Moses said. I really don't want to do this, finally, he said. And you know what God's reaction to Moses was? He got ticked off. In fact, majorly ticked off. The Bible's words are, the Lord burned with anger at Moses. God didn't have a light reaction to Moses' refusal to take up a big challenge that God was giving him. And when you look through the Bible, I want you to remember how many just regular people, because God strengthened them, took up huge challenges. If you're not involved in a ministry because you're saying, I don't know if I can do it, think about these people. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses, as we just heard, stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was a little eccentric, wore funny clothes, and ate weird food. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha was a worrywart. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was highly unpopular. Thomas had doubts. James was a convert 
who had resisted believing in his own brother that he grew up with. Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. So what's my excuse? What's yours? If God could work through those people, through these just regular people, common everyday people, an extraordinary God working through them, them, then we should not hesitate to take up the challenge of doing great things for God. So very quickly, I want to run through five ways that you can answer the question, how do I know where I should take up the challenge? Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12.4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. The first question to ask yourself is, how has God gifted me spiritually? What, what are my spiritual gifts? And if you want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about spiritual gifts, look at Romans 12.6-8, Ephesians 4.11, and 1 Corinthians 12.1-14. That's Romans 12.6-8, Ephesians 4.11, and 1 Corinthians 12.1-14. And ask yourself, what are my spiritual gifts? Secondly of all, what's on your heart? Look at what 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. What have you decided in your heart? What's in there that you'd love to give to God? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? Third is abilities. We don't all share the same abilities. And Paul says that's a good thing. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You may passionately want to be an ear, but what if your abilities are to be an eye? Think about your abilities. Fourth is personality. How has God gifted you with personality? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you naturally outgoing and exuberant? Or are you kind of quiet and private? Are you a a doer by nature? Or a dreamer? Or do you like to develop stuff? What's your personality? Look at what God did with a man like Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. The apostles ended up calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because his personality was to reach out and encourage people. And he took that and he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. He used his gift of encouragement because that was his personality. Finally is to ask yourself, what are my experiences in life? Dallas Willard says this, For those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. You may have had some tough experiences in life. But you can redeem those experiences by using them to help others. Use your experiences in life. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So here's the last thing. God has shaped up good things for you to do, just like he he did for Moses. Good things which he has prepared in advance for you. 
You can use that SHAPE acronym to, to figure out where does God want me to plug into those good things? What might those good things be that he has planned in advance? And don't think to yourself, that's too small a task. And don't think to yourself, that's too big a challenge. That might be something that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Remember the song? It's crowded in church today. As she quietly slips in, trying to fade into the faces. And the girl's teasing laughter is carrying further than they know. Can you picture that girl? Or how about the gentleman described in the song? A traveler far away from home. He's taken off his coat and quietly settled into the back row of the church. And he catches what seem to be judgmental glances as he sits there. We are the body of Christ. And one of the most amazing things is that God has asked us to be the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes of his son, Jesus. And especially the ears, the eyes, and the hands and the feet of Jesus toward those who are hurting and lonely and needy just like Jesus was. When we think about the church, you can't get around the topic of service because God has prepared in advance good works that he wants us together and us individually to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you loved us in your son, Jesus Christ. What an amazing God you are, that you literally stooped down into this world by sending your son, Jesus, to die for us. And now you've lifted us up. You've put us on your shoulders. And every day you want to make us great by preparing a banquet of good works for us to do. Small things, Lord, and big things. And now, Lord, I ask you to so fill our hearts with your love and your grace and your forgiveness that those good works that you've prepared for us just overflow organically and naturally out of us as we live a life of thanksgiving in response to your great love for us. Help us to love as you first loved us. And Lord God, Heavenly Father, help this church to be not only an outreaching church and not only a growing and developing church but also a church that is truly the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears of jesus and we pray this in his name amen thank you for listening to the crosswalk church podcast for more information visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com 